Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom's weight management programs are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies, the show on the Pitcherless Podcast Network, where we dive into the stories, myths, and legends and players who helped shape the game of baseball throughout its history across the world, and the players who help make it the game we love and help make us love the game itself. I'm your host, Daniel Port. I'm very excited to have you all here today. I hope uh, this podcast episode finds you well and that you all are doing well. It's today's going to be an interesting one. It's going to be a divisive one, and not in the way of say like when we talk about Doc Gooden and, and things like that. There's no, I feel like there doesn't have to be any content warnings or anything like that for today's episode. But I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna be divisive. I think we're gonna talk about this episode because we are going to talk about Barry Bonds, and so as I mentioned last week or last episode, I should say. The theme of this episode is shifting from the effortless cool of Ken Griffey Jr. and the pure, fun swagger of Ricky Henderson to the other side of the coin. Now we're going to talk about the guys who played with the world's biggest chip on their shoulder. Those players at their peak were the greatest players on earth and still had beef with the world. And don't get me wrong, I don't really want to paint that in an entirely negative light. It's probably not the most well-adjusted approach to playing a sport. It's hard sometimes to argue against the results. Anger, when harnessed correctly, can drive a player and create a sense of white-hot focus and persistence that can be really hard to maintain without that fuel. I mean, that there's a reason why the best in almost all major sports are really described as the nicest of guys. For me, the perfect example, the one that comes to mind right away, isn't actually in baseball, but in basketball. And yes, I'm talking about Michael Jordan. Look at the Shrug game in the 92 Finals, for crying out loud. If you haven't seen it, A, what rock have you been living under? It's iconic. And B, pause this podcast to go YouTube the Shrug game. It's, it's absurd. The The thing is, it was mostly all about destroying Clyde Drexler, who was an up-and-coming star in basketball at the time, and that annoyed Jordan. So much of that moment was created by the media and the league pumping out Clyde Drexler coming into the Finals, and they were even calling him the next Michael Jordan, and, and Jordan couldn't handle that. And none of it was really Drexler's doing. He never said that. His only fault was being a basketball star in Jordan's Galactus-style world-eating basketball domination tour. But Jordan needed a, a rival, and he made it Drexler, and the media made it Drexler. And he needed that threat to push him to feed his relentless will to win and be the best ever. And we're talking about a man who's famous for creating rivalries and using it as fuel. And that's the type of player I'm talking about. In baseball, the best example I can think of for that type of player is one Barry Lamar Bonds. There might not be a more polarizing player in the history of baseball. 
And there might not be a player who was more motivated in baseball history by both his hatred of the media and his rivals and his jealousy of players who were getting either more attention or more glory than him and also acted the entire time like he didn't care about that at all. And the thing is, you'd be hard-pressed to find a baseball fan, whether they are a casual fan or a die hard, bread-in-the-bone baseball fan for life that doesn't have an opinion about Barry Bonds and his legacy. I think of in his article for The Athletic, Scott Pazanski, when he ranked Barry Bonds as the third greatest player ever, put it perfectly, in my opinion. And and I'm paraphrasing this. Either you love Bonds for his insane accomplishments and otherworldly deeds, steroids be darned, or none of it matters at all because of the steroids, and Bond's prickly, if not borderline, if not borderline, somewhat abusive personality. And I'm hoping today to show legitimate arguments for both sides and to give them some level of weight and maybe find a way to accurately determine how important Bond's legacy is to telling the story of baseball when we get around to ranking him. Heck, hopefully by the end of this, we might even be able to take a look at our role as fans and ask if we too bear some blame for how Bond's legacy turned out. Hopefully we can turn that a little inward. Though, as per usual, though, before we dive into all that, into the story of that legacy, let's take a big picture view of just how good Bonds was. Across 22 seasons with the Pirates and the Giants, Bonds put up some absolutely outrageous numbers. He won seven MVPs, which is the most in MLB history, to go along with 14 All-Star appearances, eight gold gloves, and 12 Silver Slugger awards. His 162 war is fourth all-time, with only Ruth, Walter Johnson and Cy Young ahead of him. He hit 298 for his career, his 444 OBP is 7th all-time, and his 607 slugging percentage is 8th all-time, with his OPS ranking 5th all-time. His 2,227 runs scored is 3rd all-time. He's 6th all-time in RBIs with 1,996, while ranking 1st in walks with 2,558, and most notably 1st in home runs with 762. His career 182 OPS plus is fourth all-time, while he is first in runs created and second in adjusted batting runs. He's second in extra base hits all-time and times on base as well. And oh, by the way, he also was still somehow 34th in stolen bases with 514. He never had a single season with an OPS plus below 100. He hit over 30 home runs 14 times in a season while breaking the single season home run record in 2001 with 73. All that craziness, all of those stats, though, and maybe the most incredible stat of all is his OPS consistency. He had an OPS over one for 13 consecutive seasons from 1992 to 2005. If you count seasons with an OPS over 900, that increased to 17 consecutive seasons. To me, those numbers are like trying to imagine an infinite amount of something, like my brain just can't actually comprehend it that that's just shy of two decades worth of seasons with an ops over 900 act from from 1987 to 2004 he posted just one season one season with a war below 5.8 and i'm pretty sure no even in the strike season 1994 he did not post season with uh, below 5.8 war just unbelievable like words and numbers don't do justice to his excellence and yes of course we'll get into the caveats and the steroids don't worry we'll talk about all that throughout the episode 
but I think that's a, fur, a better discussion for further down the line once we get there. But for now, just bask in that level of excellence. Just take it in in a vacuum. It's just incredible. I, I honestly don't know if we've seen the likes of that kind of output from a player who's played his entire career in the MLB. Just keep that in mind as we go through Bonds' story. It's not all just steroids and bad tempers. And I mean, I mean, when we're talking about the stats, we're just scratching the surface. Now, keeping that all in mind, before we dive into the full story here, let's take a break, let that all soak in, we'll pay some bills, and then we'll come back and I'll do my best to really try and weave the nuanced tale of Barry, Barry Bonds and really hopefully be able to give the whole picture. This podcast is sponsored by Underdog. Want to make money making picks on MLB games and you have to try Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. In Underdog's Pick'em game, you just pick your favorite baseball players and predict whether they will go higher or lower on stats like strikeouts, hits, and more. Pick the two to five players, get all your picks right, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Be sure to sign up with the promo code PITCHERLIST and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100 so you have some bonus cash to start playing with. Again, that's UnderdogFantasy.com or Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Sign up with promo code PITCHERLIST and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 or older, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. In Tennessee, call 1-800-889-9789. When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat, and that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain, and they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow, and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So, in many ways, if you're going to understand Barry Bonds, it starts in his childhood, and more importantly with his father, Bobby Bonds, who spent 14 years in the major leagues from 1968 to 1981. He's a three-time All-Star who still, I believe, is the only player to have five or more seasons with 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases in a single year. Barry was just four years old when Bobby made his major league debut at 21, so Barry spends his entire childhood not just in clubhouses across the country, but listening to the media scrutinize and judge his father. And that sticks with a kid, and probably, frankly ends up informing a lot of his relationships with the media and with attention and criticism as an adult. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with that. Just for now, know that I mean, a kid can't be around that that much. And not have it affect him. And Bobby Bonds was a complicated man. He was portrayed as a as a good teammate, liked. In fact, one of his best friends ended up being Barry Bonds' 
Godfather and Willie Mays. And while he was basically a man built in a lab to be a baseball star, there was a darker side to that coin too, as he was also an alcoholic who struggled with drunk driving incidences throughout his career and was considered a pretty ruthless father to Barry. And in fact, the two were really not all that close throughout much of Barry's childhood. Bobby's actions really as an alcoholic was something that would haunt both Bonds's, uh, both Bonds men, really, frankly, in the public eye throughout their careers. Uh, Bonds is often taunted, Barry Bonds is often taunted for it throughout his career as well. It, it just really was something that would set a tone for, for really both their entire careers. And when Bobby first came up, he was heralded as the next great baseball player of his generation. He had speed. He was a true five-tool player. And despite, I'm frankly putting a pretty respectable 57 war over his 14-year career, he was largely spoken about publicly as a player who could have been so much more. It was mostly a disappointment. And that's both fair and unfair. And really, it created an environment that even when he was succeeding, Bobby was just merely meeting expectations, not exceeding them because those expectations were so high. And so there really was no winning for Bobby Bonds. And obviously that doesn't excuse his behaviors in any way, especially as a father, which many stories paint him as borderline abusive. And his excesses can't be excused either, but certainly helps add context and color to them. And then again, frankly, to add context and color to Barry's relationship with the media and Barry's relationship with, with success and meeting expectations and the things and the lengths you would go to meet them. Barry was a star from the moment he stepped onto a little league field and he excelled at baseball throughout his childhood. As a high school star, he excelled leading the league in home runs most seasons, but often his attitude stood out about as much as his performance did. There were rumors of being late to practice and never studying and many scouts noted a prickly, if not outright rude, demeanor. By the time he was a senior, his father had retired from baseball and decided to act as Barry's advisor. And this only served to further turn teams off of drafting Barry Bonds. The Giants did end up drafting him in the second round in 1982, but after haggling over $5,000, the Giants pulled their offer and Barry was off to play college ball. Now at Arizona State, Bonds excelled and was incredible in the College World Series as a freshman. ASU finished in third that year. Rumors about his attitude problems followed him there, though, as he would still skip or show play for practices. He'd ignore team rules and act like he was above the rest of the team. Apparently, the following year, 1984, ASU's coach Jim Brock actually held a vote amongst the team uh, to ask if they should kick Bonds off the team, and he was so disliked the players actually did vote against him, despite how good he was. Brock ended up overriding the vote, saying it wasn't unanimous, and kept Bonds on the team. Uh, let's be realistic, he was far too good to actually cut. But that's pretty telling about Bonds' attitude and the way he interacted with those around him. And they would lose again that year in the College World Series, but Bonds actually, for the record, in that College World set a record with hits in seven straight at-bats which is remarkable. In 1985, Bonds had an incredible year for ASU, hitting 368 with 23 home runs, which at that point felt like with nothing else to prove at the college level, it was time to go pro. So Bonds goes back in the draft. He was drafted that year in the first round by the Pirates. 
He wouldn't spend long in the minors, but start off at A-ball in the Carolina League, where he would play 71 games as a 20-year-old, hitting 299 with 13 home runs and 15 stolen bases. That earned him a promotion to AAA the following year, where he would hit 311 with 7 home runs and 16 stolen bases, which earned him a quick promotion to the majors later that year. Like I said, he didn't spend long in the minors. In fact, it took just 115 games total in the minors before the Pirates felt he was ready. That's how polished young Barry Bonds already was. He had his first major league hit in his second game as a pro and hit his first major league home run a few days later. All in all, he had a solid rookie season considering his age and professional inexperience. He hit just 221, but he had 16 home runs and 36 stolen bases while putting up 3.5 war in 113 games. It's pretty solid considering his age. Now, despite leading all rookies in war that season, he finished 6th in Rookie of the Year voting while be, uh, beating winner Todd Worrell by nearly a full win. The rebuilding Pirates were terrible that year, and so there was no postseason that year for the young rookie. In fact, he wouldn't see the postseason until the end of the 80s. Now, in case you're wondering if there was a sophomore slump in store for Bonds in 1987, no, no, there was not. He hit 261 with 25 home runs, 32 stolen bases, and 34 doubles to go along with 59 RBIs and 99 runs scored in 150 games. On the season, he was worth 5.8 war, which is remarkable for a 22-year-old, and we would be on the eve of Y2K before we'd see another season for Bonds with a lower war than that 5.8 mark. One knock on his season, though, was he was moved to left field, as apparently the Pirates felt he wasn't coachable and disciplined enough to handle center field, and so they traded for Andy Van Slyke and moved him over to left field. And this lit a fire under Bonds, who became determined to win a gold glove. He felt this was a slight on him, and he'd eventually win eight gold gloves in nine seasons. You get a sense of just how, when Bonds dedicated himself to improving and to, to bettering a part of his game, he didn't do it in half measures. It was all or nothing, and he would dedicate himself until he did it. Now, 1988 saw Bonds continuing to improve as a hitter as he hit 283 with an 859 OPS, which was good for a 148 OPS plus, while hitting 24 home runs and stealing 17 bases to go along with 58 RBIs and 97 runs scored. He was worth 6.3 war across 144 games, but somehow wasn't an all-star, nor did he receive MVP votes, which is surprising considering he was 7th amongst NL hitters in war and finishes .2 war behind Kirk Gibson, who won the award that year. By the time all is said and done, Bonds won't be hurting for MVP trophies, obviously, but he certainly has an argument that he should have won that season, and to get, maybe not win, but to get no votes at all is nutty, in my personal opinion. But 1989, then sees some regression from the young stars. Bonds would hit just 248 with a 777. OPS with a 126 OPS plus and 19 home runs, but he would steal 32 bases and still manage an excellent 351 OBP, considering the batting average drop to go along with 96 runs scored and 58 RBIs. He shockingly wasn't popular in a steel town like Pittsburgh. It was very blue collar, with the fans supposedly not liking his attitude and his what was like his perceived work ethic. And there were rumble rumblings in the organization that he was available. They end up holding on to him, but they do end up moving him from the leadoff spot in the lineup 
in, in the heading into the 1990 season and place him in the fifth slot in the order after Andy Van Slyke and Bobby Bonilla. And this sets Bonds free. He goes absolutely bonkers in 1990 with a truly great season, hitting 301 with a 406 OBP and a 970 OPS, which led the NL and was good for a 170 OPS plus while crushing 33 home runs to go on 32 doubles and a fantastic 52 stolen bases. He's named to his first All-Star game and wins his first Gold Glove and Silver Slugger award. But more importantly, thanks to leading the NL with a fantastic 9.7 war, Bonds wins his first MVP award while finishing .8 war ahead of Lenny Dykstra. Bonds absolutely deserved it, but didn't exactly endear himself after winning when he said, I decided this year was time for me to get the respect I deserved for myself. And... It's not that there's anything wrong even with that phrase or that that, that that statement. Baseball, though, is a game for better or worse that expects cliches and platitudes about about the team and how no one does this by themselves and I owe it all to my teammates or things like that. And I've said before, I don't mind cocky players or I don't mind swagger. I don't require my players and the players I root for to be humble. Uh, I love bold dec- declarations like this. But this felt a little different. And I wouldn't say it felt like a threat or anything, although I think many media members felt like it was. But it definitely, it didn't feel like a statement without at least a little bit of menace and malice to it. And I'm not saying it wasn't deserved. A decent chunk of it probably was deserved. He had just gotten screwed out of the MVP award the year before. I get where that that has come from, but it it just, it felt like a lot (laughs) reading it. And we'll get into it, but I'd say that outward disdain for the media probably cost Bonds in the long run in a lot of ways. And I've often said this, if you take away the, ignore the steroids, ignore all the stuff, if Barry Bonds had probably gotten along with the media, we'd all probably ignore it. Why? David Ortiz is in the, is in, is in the Hall of Fame, got in unanimously. We, we ignore steroids when we like the guys. So there's something to be said for how much this attitude ends up hurting Barry and how we view his legacy here. Now, even despite that, he often overcomes the bias against him for his personality with his production. It's just too good. He, he just made it, it's just that attitude made it far too easy to hold his sins and shortcomings against him, historically speaking. Now, moving on from that, though, at the end of the season, the Pirates suddenly found themselves in a place they hadn't seen for quite some time. And that was in the postseason, which was very exciting for Pirates fans. They faced the Reds in the NLCS. They lose in six games, but it was a sign that the franchise was back, moving in the right direction. Now, Bonds struggles mightily in the series, hitting just 167 without a single extra base hit and just one RBI. But again, the excitement was there in Pittsburgh. Now, 1991 was a fine encore for Bonds as he has 292 with 25 home runs, 43 stolen bases, 116 RBIs, and 95 runs scored. His 410 OVP led the NL, as did his 924 OPS, which was good for a 160 OPS+. plus. Despite putting up an 858 OPS in the first half with 11 home runs and 21 stolen bases, he isn't named in the All-Star game, which blows my mind, but he does win his second consecutive Gold Glove and Silver Slugger award. Perhaps the bigger surprise, though, was that despite leading all NL hitters in war with 8 war, he finished just second in MVP voting to Terry Pendleton, who managed a 6.1 war. Between this and the All-Star snub, 
This is probably the first sign that his attitude and battles with the media were costing him when it came to the publicly and media-controlled awards and accomplishments. But because really when you look at it, outside of hitting 319, there was absolutely no category where Pendleton outdid Bonds. Yet in the end, Pendleton had more MVP votes. Obviously, this you can already see the effects of that. And I guess there's a fair place to argue that handling the media and staying on the good side is part of the job of being a Major League Baseball star. But it's also difficult to argue against the idea that in this particular instance, the best player in the National League didn't win the award that is given to the best player in the National League. Regardless of how you feel about Barry Bonds as a person, like you can't argue that the best player in the league that year didn't win the, the, the best players who won the MVP that year. Now, the Pirates make the playoffs again in 1991, but for the second year in a row, Bonds struggles in the postseason, hitting just 148, with only a double and three singles to his name and no RBIs, as Pittsburgh loses to Atlanta in seven games. Now, if you were wondering if 1991's MVP snub would push Bonds to a whole nother uh, level in 1992, then you would be right. He seemed determined to make sure he played so well that no one could vote for anyone else in the MVP race, and boy was in an incredible season. Across 140 games, he hits 311 with 34 home runs, 39 stolen bases, and 103 RBIs while leading the NL in runs with 109 and leading all of Major League Baseball with 127 walks, 456 OBP. He also led in slugging with a 624 mark and, of course, because of that, led in OPS with a 1.080 mark, which is good for a 204 OPS+. plus. Yeah, that's right to think about that for a second. He was 104% better than the average hitter by OPS that season. He's an all-star for the second time in his career and wins his third straight gold glove and silver slugger awards as well. More importantly, he wins his second MVP award in a landslide. It was well-deserved as he led all National League hitters with nine war that year, which is a full 1.2 war more than the next highest hitter, Ryan Sandberg. It's worth noting also that he had finally achieved the same single-season greatness his father had pulled off, joining the elite 30-30 club with 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. Now, once again, the Pirates make the playoffs, and Bonds plays better, hitting 261 with his first postseason home run across seven games in the series with two RBIs, but obviously not overwhelming or anything, and once again, the Pirates lose in seven games to Atlanta for the second year in a row. Now, heading into the offseason and his first shot at free agency, Bonds made clear that he wanted to become the highest paid player in baseball. The Pirates had no intention of meeting that demand. And unfortunately, there's, you know, due to their small market, Bonds' attitude, and his struggles in the playoffs, this all gave him the Pirates the perfect cover to let Bonds walk in free agency. In fact, really, practically the entire league refused to pay him. Even the, even the Yankees balked at it. And it was incre- it's incredible to imagine a team not wanting Barry Bonds on their team. But that's how thoroughly he had burned his bridges with teams throughout the league and with the media and fans and fellow players. Luckily, though, for Bonds, his hometown team in San Francisco had just gotten a new owner, Peter uh, McGowan, and he wanted to do something big. Owners love to do something big their first year when they take over the team. They end up signing Bonds to a six-year, $43 million contract to come play for the team his father and godfather Willie Mays played for on the Bay. Bonds was quoted as having said at the time, every time I step on that field, I know my godfather's in center field and my dad's in right field. He, he was finally home. And honestly, he had found really the one fandom 
that ended up embracing him too. Uh, he was beloved his entire career in San Francisco. And he played the rest of his career there. And they just really, in a way, no other fan base or no other really group of people did. They really embraced Barry Bonds. Now, he's a fantastic debut season in 1993 for the Giants, hitting 336 with an MLB leading 46 home runs. He also led all baseball with a 677 slugging percentage and a 1.136 OPS, which is good for a 206 OPS plus, as well as in total bases with 365. In addition, he led the NL in RBIs with 123 while also posting a fantastic 123 runs scored and 29 stolen bases. Just an absolutely incredible otherworldly season. In many ways, this was the start of a, a turning point for Bonds power-wise, as he wouldn't hit fewer than 30 home runs in a full season until 2006. He goes to his second All-Star game in a row, as well as wins his fourth Gold Glove and Silver Slug Award, and he wins the MVP for the second consecutive year in a row. Only one other player, Lenny Dykstra, even received a handful of first-place votes, which was fitting considering Bonds led all National League hitters in war with 9.9 .9 war, which was a full 3.3 war more than Dykstra. That's incredible. It's worth noting that back during this period of baseball, there was just the East and West divisions and no wild cards, right? Which this ended up leading to some pretty tight pennant races. Bonds so thoroughly elevated the Giants that I believe they'd won 70-something games here before that they won 103 games in 1993. But then, of course, also finished second in the NL West to the Atlanta Braves by one game. And this might end up going down as one of the greatest pennant races of all time. I can't remember a pennant race that had two teams winning that many games, finishing that close to each other. But nonetheless, the Giants found themselves on the outside looking in regarding the playoffs that year, which is just uh, brutal and maybe the best argument around for why the wild card would actually be created the following year in 1994. Now, speaking of 1994, we all know what's showing up here. That's right. It's the strike year. Bonds is great across the 112 games, hitting 312 with 37 home runs. Yeah, that's right. The season was cut short by 50 games, and he still nearly hit 40 home runs. Uh, with a 426 OBP and a 1.073 OPS, he also threw in 81 RBIs and 89 runs scored with 29 stolen bases that year. Uh, and he's an all-star for the fourth time and wins yet another Gold Glove and Silver Slug Award, but finishes fourth in the MVP voting. And he rightfully shouldn't have won, to be fair, that year, since his 6.2 war that year was second amongst hitters in the National League to Jeff Bagwell, who finished with an incredible 8.2 war and rightfully won the award. His teammate Matt Williams finished ahead of him as well, despite having far less war, but I guess it's not surprising. If you've listened to earlier episodes of this year podcast, you'll remember we've covered Matt Williams before, and this was the year he was on pace to break Roger Maris's home run record when the season was halted, I believe he had 43. So he gets a little bit of bonus points there in the MVP race. Either way, there was suddenly no playoffs, and the 1994 season comes to an end. 1995 started late as well due to the strike, as we all know. And Bonds is great in 144 games, hitting 294 with a league-leading .431 OBP and a 1.009 OPS, which is good for a 170 OPS+. plus. He had 33 home runs with 104 RBIs, 109 runs scored, to go along with 31 stolen bases. 
He goes to his fourth consecutive All-Star game, but finishes 12th in the MVP voting, which is astonishingly low considering Bonds led all hitters in the NL in war with a total of 7.5, which was 0.9 war higher than Reggie Sanders, who was the next highest hitter that year. There's some theory historically that this vote was the Writers Association's way of trying to send a message to Bonds, but all in all, it's just absurd. He was the best player in the National League that year, and he absolutely just should have, he should have won his third consecutive MVP. There's no doubt about it. He was the best player. And and think about it, this is pre-steroid scandals. This is pre when he claims he started taking steroids. You, you can't blame it on that. You can't blame it on anything other than they just didn't get along. And the Writers Association decided to let that essentially taint and bias the vote, if that's really what happened. And, and that's just, to me, unprofessional. And obviously, I love baseball writers. I, I try, I want to be one. I do write about baseball. But it, it's just, it's such a hard task. It's why I don't even know if voting like that should be how we do things. Because it is so hard to not let personal biases play a part in these things. We're human beings, and it's just, it's tough. And, and especially with someone as contentious as Bonds. He should have won the MVP, and we can move on from that, but it's just kind of something to think about. There's at least two or three MVP awards here in his career that Bonds should have won beyond the seven that he did win. It's just absurd to me. Now, despite Bonds' excellence uh, throughout the year, the Giants really struggled. They finished under 500 and end up fourth in the NL West, and so therefore missed the playoffs. Now, the MVP snub trend, as I say, continued in 1996 as well. Bonds was incredible. He hits 308 with a 461 OBP and a 1.076 OPS, which is good for a 188 OPS+. Plus. He hit 42 home runs with 40 stolen bases, making him just the second player ever to do. He also drove in 129 RBIs and 122 runs. And we're talking just outrageously good numbers, as he is again an all-star. He wins a gold glove and a silver slugger, but... Here's the crazy thing. Despite all of those crazy good numbers and leading the NL in war with 9.7, he finishes fifth this time in MVP voting. That mark was a full 1.6 war higher than Bernard Gilkey, who was second that year. Ken Caminiti won the MVP that year, finishing a full 2.1 war behind Bonds. That, that's a full 10 out of 10 on the Juan Gonzalez MVP robbery scale. It just batty to me and again part of the problem might have been the media's relationship with bonds but also part of the problem and some of it might have been obviously just voting fatigue in general and that you probably could have made bonds the mvp of any given year he played in for half his career but also the giants weren't good and we know at the, especially at this time of the in baseball history that that mattered still because the giants only win 68 games that season and they finished fourth in the NL West again. They did not make the playoffs. And you have to wonder if that factored in as well. If, if they said the Giants just didn't win enough games for him to, to really deserve the MVP. Which I think is a silly way to look at it. We know baseball takes far more players than just one to create a winning team. But, but I get it if that was what part of what factored in. Now, 1997, we saw more of the same. Bonds is outrageously good. And he gets... Snubbed, or at least unappreciated for it. He hits 291 with a 446 OBP and a 1.031 OPS, 
which was good for a 170 OPS plus to go along with 40 home runs, 37 stolen bases, with 101 RBIs and 123 runs scored. He is an all-star game. He wins a gold glove and a silver slugger. You know, ho-hum. Just another year for Barry Bonds. And he finishes fifth in the MVP race again that year after being worth 8.2 war. Now, he shouldn't have won the award this year. I will fully admit that. As Larry Walker was well-deserving of winning the award. He led the league with 9.8 war. Above Bonds' numbers here. But he probably should have finished higher than fifth. Is a big part of that. I think that there's uh, a place when you start making a Hall of Fame candidacies and arguments that while it seems like I'm picking nits, the difference between finishing fifth and finishing second can make or break an argument sometimes. Obviously, Bonds had other extenuating circumstances, but every little bit I think would have helped to a certain degree if he had done a little better in some of these votings. Now, the the fun thing about the season is the Giants turn things around. They win 90 games, and they make the playoffs for the first time since Bonds had joined the team. Unfortunately, the NLDS, they would face the the team of destiny, so to say, in the Florida Marlins, who would defeat the Giants resoundingly in three games. I don't like to talk about the Florida Marlins in 1997. As a Guardians fan, I have an axe to grind. I will never be a Marlins fan just because of that year. It's them in Atlanta that I will just hate forever for 1995 and 1997. But they do go on to win the World Series. Again, I don't like to talk about it. But Bonds struggles yet again in the series. He hits 250 with no home runs and just two RBIs across the three games. But again, to be fair, across three games, anyone hits a slump. So it's hard to hold that one specifically against him. But when taken in the context of his struggles throughout the playoffs, it is a bit telling. Now, 1998 marks another turning point in Bonds' career, for better or worse. In some ways, it will take him to new heights as a player but also is the thing that really ultimately leads to his downfall in terms of his reputation and his legacy. Now, Bonds was awesome in the season. He, he hits 303 with a 438 OBP and a 1.047 OPS, which is good for a 178 OPS plus with 37 home runs, 122 RBIs, and 120 runs scored, along with 28 stolen bases and 44 doubles. He's an all-star again. Shocking, I know. But he only wins a gold glove that year. No silver slugger award. He finishes the season with 8.1 war, which leads the National League, but somehow he finishes 8th in MVP voting. Now, there are some extenuating circumstances to this. A big part of this year, we know it's 1998, right? This is the year in the National League that Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa raced to break Roger Maris' home run record. We call it the year that saved baseball. And, and McGuire actually did break Roger Maris' record that year, hitting 70 home runs. Now, in a big way, this kind of broke something in, in Bonds, right? He, he was the best player in the National League. He knew it. And it didn't matter that he played elite defense. It didn't matter that he stole bases. It didn't matter that he played the game in many ways the, the right way in his, in his eyes. To him, all that he saw was hit home runs, get big. Back in 2006, writer Jeff Perlman wrote an article for ESPN that was actually an excerpt from the book he wrote on Bonds that talked about Bonds' jealousy at the time over the attention McGuire's were getting for hitting home runs despite both of them being suspected steroid users. Later, I can't remember if it's after this or before, right around when uh, McGuire does get caught taking anabolic steroids, I believe it was, and Sosa, far down the line, 
would come out that it was believed he was also taking steroids. So most of it was probably known at the time through the locker rooms and things like that. So Bonds, who, uh, as far as he claims, as far as the uh, Perlman claims, Perz Williams claims, he was clean up until now. He did not take steroids. But one night, as the, the book tells the tale, he was at a dinner with Ken Griffey Jr., who he's close friends with, and a few reps from an unnamed athletic company. And the quote that the, 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 the book says he, he says is, you know what? I had a hell of a season last year, and nobody gave a crap. Nobody. As much as I've complained about McGuire and Conseco and all the bull with steroids, I'm tired of fighting it. I turned 35 this year. I got three or four good seasons left, and I want to get paid. I'm just going to start using some hardcore stuff, and hopefully it won't hurt my body. Then I'll get out of the game and be done with it. And obviously this is a, a huge turning point for Barry Bonds in, in terms of himself as a player, in terms of his impact on baseball. It just really it changes everything, right? And we head into the 1999 season, and Bonds is decidedly different. He's, he comes in the camp enormous. And Bonds was always a big guy. But he's always more tall and long and built. He looked like a like a stronger runner in a lot of ways. Uh, that kind of five to left that we expect. And now at this point in '99, he is he's huge. He looks enormous to the point at which even if all the things that came out later about steroids and him using steroids never came out, everyone would have known he did. There's just no way you don't get that big that fast. I don't care what your regiment is, and. and it was just, it's funny at the time, I, I remember it being like this thing of, is he, is he not? And like looking back on it, of course he was. It was so obvious. Now, at this point, he's aided by, it was rumored that at 34 years old, he was taking steroids and it was suspected also taking human growth hormone. And the added bulk took its toll on him that season. I think of, I always regale you with stories of me as an athlete i'm sure none of you care about but i think for context sometimes it makes sense i just if this makes any sense at all i when i first started playing tennis about a year ago one of the funnier things that would happen was and i'm in pretty good shape i'm a pretty good athlete i'm pretty strong and if i have pretty strong legs i would come home and it wasn't that my my muscles would hurt my muscles would feel fine but my like my achilles and my my tendons my joints would just ache for the first three months I was playing. And I asked, one day I was in, I was getting something else looked at, and I asked my sports doctor, I said, hey, why is this, what's going on here? And and what he told me was, he goes, the thing is, you haven't done really that kind of running or that, that kind of thing, and you're putting on a lot of muscle very quickly, which I was building a lot of bulk in my legs, and I'd really never done a sport that involved that kind of running before. And he's like, the hard part is you've put on a lot of weight and muscle mass, and your tendons take longer to get to get caught up, right? That, 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 that's what he was saying. Was that, like, so your tendons are saying, hey, give us a minute here. And over time, I did a lot more exercises built around strengthening my tendons and doing stuff like that when I wasn't playing tennis. And suddenly my, my tendons did catch up. And now I get no pain in my legs and, and stuff like that. When you go through rapid body, body shifts like that, it can be really tough on your tendons and on your joints. And this happens to Bonds. He, throughout the season, would exper experience pain in his elbow. And I believe somewhere, sometime in May or so, he ends up having surgery on his elbow. Well, maybe it was a little later than that. But it ends up limiting him overall to the season in the season to just 102 games. 
Now, he still hits 34 home runs in that short period of time while hitting 262 with a 389 OBP and a 1.006 OPS, which is good for a 156 OPS plus to go along with 83 RBIs and 91 runs scored and 15 stolen bases. Now, he misses the All-Star game for the first time since 1991 and misses out on all of those awards that go come along with a, a great season. He, he gets no MVP votes. He does not get a Silver Slugger or Golden Glove that year. And feels a bit like an empty lost year because of the injury now he comes back in the first year of the new millennium so to say with that same bulk but now i'm, I'm figuring those tendons and uh, the injuries caught up to that new bulk and so now he gets that new bulk and health and better luck in the health department obviously taking steroids at when human growth hormone at the time certainly helped with that because, I mean, that that's what it literally is supposed to do. But Bonds is incredible in the year 2000. He hits 306 with a 440 OBP and a 1.127 OPS, which is good for a MLB leading 188 OPS plus to go along with 106 RBIs and 129 runs scored. This would also be the season that he crested the 500 home run mark. Now, he makes a return to the All-Star game and wins the Silver Slugger Award again. He finishes the season with 7.7 war, which was third amongst NL hitters that season. He ends up second in the MVP voting behind his teammate, Jeff Kent, who had less war than he did that year. And Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds, everyone knows because of this, uh, they hated each other and <laughs> would eventually get in a very infamous uh, dugout fist fight. I remember when that happened because, again, we're talking in the height of the Sports Center era where you just kind of always had it on in the background. I was in college when uh, this happened. And it would be in the dorm rooms. And SportsCenter was just always on. And one of the things that SportsCenter used to do, I don't know, I don't really watch SportsCenter as much anymore, being a, being a bit of a cord cutter. I don't know if they still do this, but they used to just cut into things. So if something big was going on, and I remember they used to cut into Rafa Nadal was playing Roger Federer at Wimbledon in the finals, and things got tight, SportsCenter would cut into it, and you'd suddenly be watching Wimbledon. Or when Sosa Maguire were going toe to you know chase the home run, rally they would cut into their at bats just randomly there would be sports center going on they'd be like hey mcguire's about to come up and they'd jump over to his at bat and when that fist fight happened that also was a thing it was all over sports center and they would they got i remember watching it and they cut over into the like that game just to see the aftermath and what was going on and it was wild i i don't think i'd ever really seen anything like that before now Kent shouldn't have won it that year either. Uh, really, the award should have gone to Todd Helton, who led the National League with 8.9 war that year. One day we'll do a Todd Helton podcast, and I will get to wax poetically about how much I love Todd Helton. I really wish he would have won this MVP that year. But So this is not a year he got ripped off, but it's still a great season. Now, on the back of Bonds and Kent's excellence that season, the Giants make the playoffs to face the eventual National League champs, the New York Mets, where they would lose in four games to to the Metropolitans there. Now, once again, Bonds is terrible in the series. It's just 176 with no home runs and one RBI. It just... and, And from what I was reading in like Sabres write-up and other things about Bonds. The mark on him from high school on up was that he was awesome until you came playoff time or when the chips were on the table. And this seems to have haunted him his whole career, even up until now. He just couldn't come through when it mattered the most in the playoffs. And it's a real shame 
because we'll get to it when we talk about him and his legacy and talk about ranking him and things like that. That matters, and, and it's going to matter where he ends up. That's definitely going to be factored in. Now, 2001. We headed on to 2000. We got bigger, badder bonds, but this really is the year that he cements himself into the record books. He ends up breaking Mark McGuire's home run record with 73 home runs. And that wasn't even really the only remarkable thing he did that year. He also led the league in OBP with an astonishing 5, 0.515 mark, which means not only to hit 73 home runs, but when he wasn't hitting home runs, he also got on base in over half his at-bats. Because it's important to remember, as far as I understand it, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, home runs don't actually count towards OBP. I know it's because I know it's not, it doesn't count towards Woba. That's why we created Bacon and things like that was because home runs didn't get counted. He doesn't end up on base technically. Uh, so he hit the, all those home runs and then take those home runs out and look at the rest of his at-bats. That many got on base in over half his at-bats. That's crazy. Now his 1.379 OPS was the seventh highest ever for a single season and the best since 1943 and was good for a 259 OPS plus mark. Yes, you understand that correctly. He was 159% better than the average hitter in the league by OPS that season. That's how good he was. He also drove in 137 runs while scoring 129 times. It's maybe the greatest season by a hitter ever, at least in the modern times. This is another one, to go back to that sort of sports center reference, I remember when this was going on. And I'll be the first to admit, especially then, I was no Bonds fan. First off, because I loved Sammy Sosa. And I, I didn't want anyone to to beat his mark, even though he didn't technically have the record. Uh, you know, So I wasn't a Bonds fan at the time. And it felt a little bit like most of the country was rooting against him, which feels very on-brand for Bonds. But it still was something to behold. It's, it's always something to see history happen. And this is what SportsCenter would do, is every time Bonds came up, you'd have it on, and three to four times a night, they'd cut over to his at-bats. And it, it just, you always were like, oh, am I going to get to see number 62 or whatever, number 45 even, or any of these things. Everyone knew history was coming and knew that something was up. It, it was must-see TV every single night. And, and like, like I said, I wasn't really rooting for him. But it also was hard not to get caught up in it and not respect it. And I think I've said before, the Griffey had the most beautiful swing ever. But Bonds had the quickest, most powerful swing I had ever seen. Every single home run felt like it was blasted out of a rocket launcher. And even Musa or Maguire, they both had violent swings, but they had a certain effortlessness and, and uh, not grace, but they weren't... <laughs> Bonds destroyed balls is the best way I can put it. He, he took all of that malice and that anger at being passed over and, and, and forgotten and, and all that, and he channeled it into demolishing baseballs. He was on a revenge tour, and all that rawhide paid the price for it. I, I just, I don't know if we'll ever see anything like it again. It was a big moment, and Bonds was up. You just said, that's the game. He was the most feared hitter in baseball. I've, I've never seen anything like it, ever. And I don't know if we'll ever see anything like it again, frankly. And I haven't gotten the crazy part. The really crazy part about that season, the Giants don't make the playoffs. Yeah, sure, they, they do win 90 games. 
but they finished second in the NL West and missed the playoffs. We're talking about one of the greatest hitting seasons ever, period, and no playoffs. That's just bonkers to me. And for the record, Bonds runs away with the MVP that year, not even close, while being worth an astonishing 11.9 war, which is the sixth highest total ever in a single season and the most since Carl Yastrzemski in 1967. No one has come close since. And if you want to think of just how good this season was, it was one of the best hitting seasons, period, ever. Wildly, he finishes only 1.6 war ahead of the second best hitter that year in Sammy Sosa. Sosa hit one, hit 160 RBIs that season, and Bonds still finished at 1.6 war ahead of him. That's how good Bonds was. And here's the thing. Bonds isn't done yet. 2002 was actually better by a lot of measures. He hit 370. Yes, you heard that right. He hit 46 home runs and 31 doubles that year, by the way, hitting 370. He had an outrageous league-leading .582 OBP, which is the second highest qualified total ever, period, for a hitter. It means he got on base nearly 60% of the time that season. It, it's just it's crazy. And again, that's not counting his home runs. He also had a league-leading 1.381 OPS, which is good for a 268 OPS while driving in 110 RBIs and scoring 117 runs. He runs away at the MVP award again. His 11.7 war led all National League hitters by 4.6 war. 4.6 war. It's just insane how dominant he was at this point in time. No one was even close to him. Heck, he was intentionally walked 68 times that season, which was an all-time record at the time, right? The Giants win 95 games that season and finish second in the NL West again. But they make the playoffs as the wild card. And this sets the stage for a truly remarkable playoff run for Bonds. Coming into the postseason, Bonds had played in 27 playoff games in his career and hit just one home run. One home run. That's it. In the NLDS, though, against Atlanta, he hits 294 with three home runs and four RBIs with five runs scored in five games as the Giants emerge victorious. In the NLCS against the Cardinals, he added another home run, uh, added a triple, and hit 273 with six RBIs across five games as the Giants again win the series. Now, for the first and unfortunately will end up being the only time Barry Bonds was in the World Series, he's on the game's biggest stage. He is the biggest star in the game, and boy, does he show up. While the Giants would lose the series in seven games in what was one of the wildest World Series I've ever seen, they lose to the Angels. No fault in this could lie at Bonds' feet, as he had maybe the greatest World Series ever. He hits 471 with a 700 OBP across seven games and a 1.294 OPS to go along. Four home runs and six RBIs and eight runs scored. It's almost assuredly the greatest World Series performance ever. And unfortunately, he's cost uh, the World Series MVP, which he would have taken hands down, no question, just because the Giants don't win the series. And I, I remember at the time when the series was going on, there was discussion, there was genuine discussion as to whether or not you could give the MVP of the World Series to a player on the losing team. That's how good Bonds was that reporters, people, by the way, don't like Barry Bonds. He was the most viable player in the series, even if they lost. It's just unreal. That's, that's wild to me. And so, in some ways, for his legacy and for peace of mind or whatever, I'm glad this happens because... It just would have been hard to see the greatest player probably to ever play the game not 
have at least one playoff run that really was just outrageously good. So as a person who enjoys the storytelling of baseball, I'm glad that this happened. And I remember watching it, and it was crazy. I always think of, I just will remember mostly David Eckstein from that series because he just stole the show. But but Bonds was the man during that series. He was terrifying if you weren't rooting for the Giants. And he just was genuinely a force to be reckoned with. I don't know how the Giants didn't win the series with him playing that well. But that's what happens. And so we move on to 2003. 2003 is going to end up being a year that lives sort of in infamy for Bonds, for better or for worse. He's great during the season. He he hits a 341, which is incredible, with a, a MLB leading of 529 OBP. He leads both leagues in slugging at seven, with a 749 mark, and he leads both leagues, obviously, in OPS with a 1.278 mark, which is good for a 231 OPS plus. And he hits 45 home runs. He hits 22 doubles to go along with 90 RBIs and 111 runs. He is absolutely fantastic. You know, throughout the season, he is worth 9.2 war that year, which led both leagues. And he is an all-star. He wins the Silver Slugger Award again this year and runs, again, just away with the MVP award. Looking at the numbers for that year, he has 9.2 war, and Albert Poole certainly gave him a run for his money with 8.7 war. And you could have made an argument for Albert. He had an incredible season. Absolutely. But Bonds was better that year, and the war tells that same story. And so Bonds wins the MVP award again that year, and maybe that makes up a little bit for, he should have won, but maybe that makes up for some of the ones he got uh, screwed out of and that he won a tight one too. The thing is, though, we get to September of 2003, and for Bonds, everything goes bad. September of two, September of 2003 is, is a time when we'll live in infamy as uh, federal agents raid what's called BALCO, or the, also known as the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative. And BALCO is run by a man named Victor Conte. And Conte had been supplying both legal and in the, in illegal performance-enhancing drugs to athletes across the United States. It's worth noting, certain steroids, certain things weren't even necessarily illegal yet. This is, uh, I think, McGuire, when he was taking steroids. He wasn't actually taking illegal steroids yet. And there was all kinds of things going on with different drugs and different things that, that you could take. It's a very different environment than it is now. But he, he was supplying both legal and illegal performance-enhancing drugs to all sorts of athletes, all sorts of trainers and coaches. And specifically, Bond's trainer, Greg Anderson, had been who introduced Bonds to, to Conte. And when federal agents questioned Conte, he admitted to supplying steroids to, to Barry Bonds. Now, this ends up unraveling. Again, this is September of that year. So we're talking the Giants, who would make the playoffs that year? This is all hanging over that. And throughout and over the playoffs and all these things, which the playoffs would not go well for the Giants. They they would lose to the Marlins, who, again, would go on to win the, uh, the World Series that year. I don't want to talk about that one either because I'm also a Cubs fan, and they broke my heart that year too. I really, I don't think I could ever be a Marlins fan. They But Bond struggles in four games, hitting 222, 
no home runs, just two RBIs in four games. Just it's not shocking given everything that was going on and all the stress and strain that was going on as well. But this leaves a huge stain on Bonds and frankly probably the Giants as well in that obviously this was going on in their locker room under their watch. It really shakes the baseball world. If you weren't, because we're talking, this is 2003, so we're talking 20 years ago, right? So if you weren't either alive or following baseball at this time, I I don't know how to some to really explain just how uh, how shocking, how earth shattering this whole thing was. We didn't know what to trust with baseball anymore. We didn't know who to believe. We didn't know what was going to happen. Was 73 home runs going to get nullified? How is this going to change? Is there asterisks? Is there all the things we've been arguing about for 20 years ever since this happened? All those questions, all of those things happened here and started here. So now, and it's worth again remembering, Bonds is coming off of winning his sixth MVP just two years earlier and set the home run record. He obviously comes out once this breaks out and he goes into the uh, basically a press conference right after it and immediately is just bombarded with questions about PEDs and he denies having taken them. Now, in December of that year, so we've gotten past the season, 2003 season is over. In December, he is brought before a federal grand jury to answer questions about about the relationship that he had with Balco. And the thing is, it's important to remember grand jury testimonies, right? As I understand them are not supposed to be public. So the transcripts, all the information that's passed through the grand juries, basically those are meant to more determine if there is a case to pursue less than like bonds having been actually on trial. So no one was supposed to find out what was said or what happens at this this trial. But then uh, that same year in, in December, the somehow the San Francisco Chronicle gets a hold of the grand jury testimony and prints it in this testimony bonds had told the grand jury that he'd used steroids he called them something called the clear in the cream which i don't know steroids enough to know what they mean i don't remember what they were from at the time but his sort of explanation was that anderson uh greg anderson's trainer had told him their flaxseed oil and a rubbing balm and we hear this uh, to, to get into this we hear athletes make these explanations or excuses depending on how you feel about it I'm talking about when they get they get dinged for for failing a drug test or things like that and to be fair i want to because like I, I think it's important to understand that probably more often than we think it does the screw up is true that i think of a lot of times you get knocked for taking cough medicine. It turns out it's got codeine in it or a painkiller or things like that. Or There's a big controversy right now in tennis over Simona Halep, who got suspended for testing positive in a drug test, but then came forward to say she had evidence that it was a tainted batch of a supplement. Things like that. So I, I do want to give players the benefit of the doubt when they say, I didn't know what was going on. I don't believe it with bonds. And some of that might be a bias coming in here. But apparently, Kimberly Bell, who was uh, one of Bonds, was Bonds' longtime girlfriend, I guess she t- told the media that she'd seen Bonds using steroids. It's just the kind of thing that, like, I feel like if it hadn't been true, if, if there wasn't anyone in the clubhouse, they would have seen him using steroids. And maybe some of it was because 
they didn't like him, but I always feel like there's a place where when a athlete screws something up, I, I can't remember his name, but I remember there was an athlete a couple years ago who down in Florida who said something, if I remember correctly, was pretty abhorrent, but then came to the press conference and said he didn't know what the word meant. He just heard it and thought it was it meant something else. And like the entire team basically came out and was like, no, you don't understand. This guy's a lovable idiot. It did not mean it. Like he'll do better and we'll get him to do better. And he, and everyone looked at it, looked at him and goes, yeah, okay, that tracks. And then on the other hand, when, oh God, what was his name? I'm trying to think of the professional basketball player. It'll come to me eventually. But when he got caught using a, a slur that I won't repeat towards the Jewish people, I don't think playing video games or doing something like that. I forget why he said it. And he was like, I don't know, blah, blah. And no one on his team, no one in the league, no one came to his defense to be like, listen, he's a good guy. He didn't mean it. No, there was radio silence. You would have heard crickets coming to his defense. And that's when you're like, that guy knew what he was doing. <laughs> and I don't buy his excuse at all. And Bonds is the same thing. There was no, there was no players. There were no coaches. There were no friends, no family coming forward really to be like, he didn't do this. And obviously, in retrospect, we have tons of evidence that he didn't do this. We have the book that was written about it. We have all the evidence that came out from it. But even at the time, everyone's like, this does not pass the sniff test. And and just a lot of that is that no no one really had Bonds' back over it. That, that felt pretty damning to me. Now, with all that hanging over his head, Bonds heads into the 2004 season. And he's great. He has an incredible season. He hits... 362, which leads the National League, to go along with a career-high .609 OBP. So he did actually literally get on base 60% of the time in 2004. That's just buck wild. I believe it's actually, that is the highest OBP in a single season for a qualified hitter ever. Period. Done. His 812 slugging led both leagues as well. And his 1.422 OPS led both leagues as well. And is, I believe, the third highest OPS in a season ever. Only, I want to say only Josh Gibson. Yeah, Josh Gibson has the two seasons that were higher in history. That's it. That in 2004 from Barry Bonds. He hits 45 home runs to go along with uh, 27 doubles, 101 RBIs, and 129 runs scored. He has a 263 OPS plus, which also led the league. He's an all-star. He wins a silver slugger that year. And he once again wins his final, his seventh and final MVP award that year. And I think it's a testament to just how good he was that year that he's got Balco hanging over his head. He is already not particularly liked. At this point, I remember feeling this and I was one of them. The entire world is rooting against Bonds at this point, and he still wins MVP by by a huge margin. That's how good he was. Is that you just couldn't deny that he was the best player in baseball? Like it's it was that simple. You just couldn't deny it. The next closest hitter in the NL that year was Adrian Beltre. Bonds had ten point six WAR. Beltre had nine point six WAR, and Beltre hit more home runs. He actually had forty eight home runs that year, but Bonds had almost he literally had. Four, uh, basically 0.4 on him in, in OPS. That's how good 
Bonds won that season. It's a no-brainer. He was the, the best player in the NL that year. Just hands down, run away with that award. And it's the last one. It's really probably the last elite season we see out of Bonds. He's good the whole rest of his career. But this is like the, the last absurd best player in baseball destroyer of worlds year from Bonds. And... Again, they just do this well, regardless of how you feel about him as a person. They do this with everything weighing on him. This is why he gets tagged uh, with this type, with this player type that we're talking about. Is you have to imagine just sheer stubbornness and I'm not going to go so far as the character just rage, but like just sheer, you can't stop me. You can't keep me down. Stubbornness is what's fueling this season. I feel like there's a point where he wanted to set the home run record just to, almost out of spite to break Ruth's home run record and to cement his name in those record books. Now, after the 2004 season, he, he'd had some long-time knee trouble, right? It's why one of the remarkable things about all those war numbers, by the way, is he did that while being a fairly mediocre fielder during those years because of the knee injuries, because of how much he'd bulked up. And obviously that took its wear and tear on his knees as well. And finally, it got bad enough that he ended up having a bunch of surgeries in the offseason and really just never got back during the 2005 season. Because it's worth noting, by the way, in 2005, he's 40 years old, right? I am 37, and I feel like I bang my shin on something and I'm, I'd am i be on the injury list for 15 days. I can't imagine, even with the steroids... And you got to imagine, you have to wonder if at this point he, if he was taking them still, because now you got to imagine he's just getting tested like crazy, and he's not stupid. But uh, he barely plays in 2005. He plays just 14 games, and really is, is just a washed-out season, right? Now, he comes back in 2006. Now, at this point, he is knocking on the door of Babe Ruth's record, 714 home runs, which this season he would surpass in May, but he clearly isn't the same guy anymore. He plays in 130 games, and the knees and the age are just taking their toll. He hits 270, uh, which, you know, is quite a drop down f- for him. He does walk a ton. He, he gets a 454 OBP on the season. He ends up with a .999 OPS on the season. So, you know, there's a debate if you round that up, obviously whether or not that keeps that streak alive that's been going on since 1992 of consecutive seasons with an OPS over over one. I'd, I'd be willing to give it to him just because that, that's just such a crazy long time. But technically, is below uh, one. He has a 156 OPS plus for the season. And he only hits 26 home runs. He only has 77 RBIs. He scores 74 runs. And he steals only three bases because at this point he can't really run that well. And the writing's on the wall. At this point, he's still playing to to try and chase the, the home run records. He's only worth four war that year. He's not an all-star. He receives no MVP votes, obviously. Does not get a silver slugger or a golden glove. And so now, the question is, at the end of 2006, again, everything is still looming over him. He's probably more hated than ever. And it's one thing to pass Ruth. Ruth has been long dead. Anyone who probably watched or grew up with Babe Ruth playing uh, is also getting on in years. And 
Now, though, he's coming up on, on 755, right? He's going after Hank Aaron's home run record, which is the all-time home run record at this point. And, like, Hank Aaron was beloved. It, like, it, we'll get to, we'll do Hank Aaron, don't worry. That, that episode is coming. But Hank Aaron was beloved. He was one of the most loved players in baseball history. And now this guy that this this villain at the point at this point is for better for worse fair or unfair he is knocking on the door breaking this record and no one wanted him to do it i remember that no one no one wanted to do that i didn't want him to do it. no one did and and he didn't care that's part of what makes bonds great is he might have not gone after it but he knew we didn't want him to do it and I feel like that fueled him. It's, it's that same thing that we talked about, that, that chip on his shoulder. Say, ah, that's my place in history. Now when you talk about home runs, uh, if I break this, you're going to have to talk about Barry Bonds, whether you like it or not. And I don't know if that's what the thought process was for him. I'm obviously, I don't know Barry Bonds. I've never spoken to Barry Bonds. But I, but that's what it felt like as a, as a, as a bystander, someone who watched it happen. That's what it felt like. And so he comes back in 2007 and... He does it. He breaks the home run record. He ends up hitting, in 2007, he ends up hitting 28 home runs. And so he ends up with the MLB record of 762. And that's debatable, obviously. Um, we talked about it in the Josh Gibson episode. Technically, Josh Gibson uh, is rumored to have hit more home runs than he did. But a lot of that happened in the Negro Leagues, where we didn't keep the greatest stats of the time. And so it's widely debated, even though that's what's listed at the Hall of Fame. Bonds is officially considered the all-time home run leader, but, but it, that is a caveat worth noting. And even if you ask, Bonds will tell you he believes that Josh Gibson's the all-time home run hitter. But that's, like I said, we talked about that during that episode, and it's a story for a different day. So go back and listen to that if you want to have that discussion. Now, the obviously, this is a big deal for Bonds, and, and is, is, is torn in so many different directions because... This is because they're one of the greatest records in baseball. He's shattered it, and everyone's talking asterisks or things like that. Bonds obviously is celebrating the situation, but then the Giants tell him, okay, we've gotten through that, but all of this is too much. All of the steroid talk, all of the things, it's just too much. And so they tell him they're not going to re-sign him. And I think the probably the final nail in the coffin was in 2007. Let's see, right around, this is in November because he had mold coming back and things like that. But the, the rumors have been going throughout the whole season. And before the season, he gets indicted for perjury and obstruction of justice for what the, the prosecutors felt he was evading their questions during the uh, the Balco grand jury investigation. And this leads to a whole a whole drawn-out process for Bonds. Bonds would just get mired in. in. In 2011, he was then convicted on the obstruction charge. But the jury wouldn't really convict him on the perjury charges. Because for perjury, you have to actually lie, right? And so he ends up getting sentenced to 30 days of house arrest, along with community service and probation. Now, after this, he appeals it for years and years. And in 2015, that conviction is overturned. Basically, uh, an appeals court d decided that while he tried to avoid ever actually answering the questions, he never lied, is what, what they come down to. And this allows them to appeal and, and overturn that conviction. And Bonds is able to move on, so to say. Now, of course, none of this helps Bonds' case for the rest of his legacy. Obviously, no team would touch him for a long time. 
we know because we've been having this argument for what this is in 20 2011 20 you know, 2015 we've been having this argument for almost a decade now as to whether or not bond should be in the hall of fame I mean, it is for a decade because his, his tenure eligibility just expired this, this year we've been having this debate for a long time about bonds all of this stuff gets factored in and i think bonds would probably say that he doesn't care about it but he does and he wants that validation and he wants us to recognize him as the best player ever but there are some debates about and we'll talk about it. we can talk about this in a second but it's just it's such a hard legacy to determine where where does he end up in all of this and that's why we're here and bonds has done several things in baseball since then he's Often, I think he, especially the Giants, acts as like a like a hitting coach, like a sort of they assign a player to him and he helps work them through their swings and approaches and things like that in spring training. And he just does that, but doesn't really take on a full-time coaching role or anything like that. And I think he's tried to change his public image quite a bit, but I don't think that they've really helped, if I'm being honest. And especially seeing recently where stories resurfaced again of from Kimberly Bell, if you remember, um, one of Bonds' ex-girlfriends, that where she came forward, and I guess she had said this originally in 1995 a little bit, but then it, it resurfaced recently in a bunch of stories, was the, that he had beaten her and, and abused her, and that there was violence and, and, and abuse involved in their relationship from Bonds. And I've said this with other players uh, and other things. You can't ignore that matters. And he was never, as far as I understand it, never convicted or, or charged with abuse. He's never had any of those issues. Please let me know if I've missed one. I, I tried to do a pretty good search for it. But, but nonetheless, you start factoring in all these things. And we know about roid rage. And we know about all the different things that go on with that. We know about... The, 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 the basically it tracks with the kind of person that sometimes Bonds got portrayed as. And so I, I don't know what to say to that other than, of course it matters. And of course, of course I do. I'm going to consider it. Of course, it, it changes how I feel about him. I feel about his accomplishments and I feel about his legacy. We do have to factor that into. And it's just, it's it's a complicated, difficult difficult thing i we talk about this in all sorts of different things of how do you separate the the art from the artist or things like that and should you and i think with bonds it's hard to do it's just really hard to do and i think we're going to try and obviously rank him here in a minute but what we're going to do i think is take a break take our last break and i'm going to collect my 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 thoughts on this and then we will we'll try and talk about should he be in the Hall of Fame? Should where should we rank him? And we'll, we'll have ourselves a, a podcast episode. Hang on, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, thanks so much, folks. Welcome back. So let's talk about Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame. There's a place where I think that, and I've gone back and forth probably about. 20 times on this and i think i will probably go back and forth on another 20 times it's hard for someone who's performed this well maybe the most dominant baseball player ever 
to not have him in the Hall of Fame, to not have his story be a part of baseball, is is just wrong. It's just not correct. It's like when he lost a lot of those MVP awards just because people didn't like him. He still was the best player in the league. And you can't argue with that part of it. And I'm going to separate two things here. Based on the character clause, which is maybe one of the most divisive things in the Hall of Fame debate, I think if you're going to enforce it, which the Hall of Fame is very selective about when they do and when they don't enforce it, I think if you do enforce it, and we start talking about whether Ty Cobb or some of these other players that that, that, that were racists or spousal abusers or just general jerks or things like that, I think that we, if it was applied universally, I'd say Bonds is out, right? And I, I don't know if he was necessarily in some ways good for the game and good for the popularity of the game because he was so unliked. Because he was competitive. and But also, he's probably the greatest player to ever played. I mean, his skills were astronomically good. And if we're not going to... If we're going to come back and not kick out some of some of these players that we've seen have issues before. That, that, that we've seen and that we, we feel like would be exclusionary based on the character clause. Then I don't think you can use the character clause to, to bar bonds from the Hall of Fame. And it's and you would say Dan didn't you say something about Doc Gooden? And yeah, you're right, absolutely. And Doc Gooden's not in the Hall of Fame, so I like to hope I'm being consistent there that I'm that I'm trying to apply the character clause universally here. Now with that as well, when we start talking about the steroids on that basis, because we don't apply the character clause universally, and therefore I don't know if you can use his exclusionary basis, even though I'd like to. In my personal voting, I would. When it comes to the steroids, I don't care. I'm just going to be honest, I don't care. I do care, but I don't care. David Ortiz got voted in the Hall of Fame unanimously. But we like David Ortiz. David Ortiz was a good guy. And so we let it go. Even though he tested positive for steroids as well. And, and it drives me crazy that we don't universally apply that that way. If we're going to care, we care. If we don't care, we don't care. One day we'll do a Sammy Sosa episode and oh, I will go off on this. But if we talk about Sosa, we, we bar Sosa McGuire yet. Again, Ortiz is in there. And I think that there's a place where we start saying either it all matters or it doesn't. There's no nuance to if they were a nice guy. And so if Ortiz is going to go in the Hall of Fame, then I just don't care. Bonds should too. The PEDs just don't matter. Like I said, on the character clause basis, because of the domestic violence issues, because of his combative nature, and the fact that, frankly, I think a lot of that was harmful for baseball. I keep him out, but the steroids aren't what's going to keep him out for me and say I don't vote for him there. Because obviously on the basis of what he's accomplished, he's a shoe-in Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest players to ever play, if not the greatest player to ever play. So, so I think he's a no-brainer Hall of Famer based on what he's accomplished. But I think when you factor in these other things, and you factor in the steroids, and you factor in the character clause stuff, just know I don't think he should be a Hall of Famer. And I'm sure I will change my mind tomorrow, but... It is hard to not have the MLB home run king in the Hall of Fame. It's just, it's, it's weird. And baseball is going to have to actually reckon with it at some point and figure out what they're going to do. Because it, it, it is a thorn in the side of it every single season when we talk about it until we figure out how we feel about it as a league 
and as a fandom, it's just going to be a black mark on baseball. And I think they have to figure that out. Yes, I don't think Bond should be a Hall of Famer. Now, the question is, where do we rank him on the list? Because that's what we're here to do. And for me, the cultural stuff matters a lot. So that's certainly going to factor in here. But first, before we jump into that, let's talk about the list. And let me give you a refresher on it in case you don't remember. So number one on our list is Sadaharu O. Number two is Central Page. Number three is Josh Gibson. Number four is Mickey Mantle. Number five is Greg Maddox. Number six is Mike Trout. Number seven is Ricky Henderson. Number eight is Ken Griffey Jr. Number nine is Ichiro. Number 10 is George Brett. Number 11 is Adrian Beltre. Number 12 is Shohei Otani. Number 13 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 14 is Edgar Martinez. And number 15 is Sandy Koufax. Number 20 is Scott Rowland. Number 25 is Johan Santana. Number 30 is Bryce Harper. Number 35 is Paul Molitor. Number 40 is Roberto Alomar. Number 45 is Dizzy Dean. Number 50 is Sean Green. Number 55 is Prince Fielder. Number 60 is Dottie Schrader. Number 65 is Brad Radke. Number 70 is Mike Sweeney. Number 71 is Herb Score. Number 72 is Mark Pryor. And number 73 is James Paxton. Check out the list. It's in the the, the notes of the episode. If you want to see the full list, because as you can see, there's 73 players we've ranked now. But where do we put Bonds? So obviously Bonds goes in the top 10, right? And it's a question of where in the top 10 does he end up based on some of these other issues. I think Sadaharu O is safe at number one. First off, he's hit more home runs than Bonds. He's the world all-time home run hitter. And if you've listened to past episodes, then I consider Japanese league stats to be equal to MLB stats especially during the time period where Sadaharu O played. And his numbers are remarkably uh, similar to Bonds. He basically Bonds in some ways without all of uh, the baggage that comes along with that. And uh, just O hits 868 home runs in his career and hit 301 for his career with a 1.080 career OPS with a .446 OBP. When you compare those to Bonds, Bonds had a .44 career OBP with a uh, 1.051 OPS for his career. He's got more home runs. His numbers are better. O was just a a better player uh, with multiple MVP awards, multiple World Series wins, or the Japanese Series uh, wins. Just an incredible baseball player. Go listen to that episode. It's a super fun episode. But I I think O is safe here. So now the question is Satchel Page. I think that Satchel Page is frankly, more important than telling the story of baseball. And I know this is going to sound like like I'm, I'm high, uh, overvaluing numbers we can't count because so much of his Negro League years were lost. So the stats were and things like that for Satchel Page. But for the Negro Leagues and for a really essential piece of history in baseball, Satchel Page is the number one storyteller. He's the one of the best players and the best pitcher in those leagues at the time. He is instrumental in shaping baseball in America. And you think about it, if you if nothing else want to think about it this way, he doesn't come into the the major leagues until what? He doesn't come in the majors until 1948 when he's 41 and We've missing three quarters of his stats, and he still put up 47 WAR. You got to imagine Satchel Page at some point was closer to 100 WAR, 
or something on those lines. And then you factor in what he meant as a black player in America and and, and at the time and the things that he went through and the stories that he told. I, I think I think because of the character claw stuff, because of the other things with Bonds, he ends up behind Satchel Page. Now, I'm gonna apply the exact same reasoning at number three to Josh Gibson. Gibson was in fact, Barry Bonds says that he believes Josh Gibson hit more home runs than he did. Josh Gibson was instrumental in the same ways that Satchel Page was. He was just not as big of a storyteller, but he's a part of cementing the mythology and the, the legends of baseball and what we view as baseball in today today's game. So I, I think Josh Gibson stays ahead of him too. So now we get to number four, and that's Mickey Mantle. And I have a feeling this is going to be a good spot for Bonds. Part of it is that Bonds had his, his demons and cheating and scandals and all that. So did Mantle. Mantle struggled with alcoholism his entire career. Really harmed his career in a lot of different ways. And Bonds outperformed him. Now, Bonds had, if you want to think about this way, Mantle was incredible. He had 110.2 war over his career, right? He had 536 home runs. And Bonds hit over 230 more home runs than him. and had almost 40 war more than him. He won seven MVPs. He won more gold gloves. I think I think I'm digging, and I apologize, obviously. Please, if, if you are, uh, how do I put this? Talking about the domestic abuse and talking about the character clause stuff. If that weighs heavier with you, have a conversation with me. Let's talk about it because I want to get it right. And I want to weigh those things properly. Because I think if you don't have those things, He's either number one or number two, right? Behind Sada or O. So I feel like I'm already dinging him, dropping him down this far for those things. And there's a question of does how much do you ding him for the steroids? And I, that's where I get stuck is he clearly outperforms Mantle. He's better than Mantle was. But we don't have any record of Mantle doing steroids. We don't have the damage that Barry Bonds did to the game of baseball because of the Balco incident because of the grand jury investigation because of all those things and I don't know which I weigh more and I think there's a question of if it was just under the merit of players Bonds wipes the floor with Mantle and Mantle's one of the greatest players of all time but Mickey Mantle was like also an icon and I'm just not sure how to weigh that I think for now and I think I'll revisit this but I think just did in his articles I think I think Bonds is number th- number four here. Just the most dominant player ever. It just it, And I think that aside from his issues and the way he treated people and the way he, he acted in the game, you can't argue with what he accomplished. And he owns too many records. He is, he's a, in an, an enormous, inescapable part of telling the story of baseball. And... I don't think there's any other way around that. You know what I'm saying? So I think for right now, like I said, let me know how you feel about this. If you disagree or if you think I should knock him down further, I get it. And we can have that discussion. But I think putting him anywhere ahead of Sadaharu O, Satchel Page, or Josh Gibson is out of the question, right? And so I think for right now where we're going to go, and we'll see, we'll revisit it, um, I think for right now, Barry Bonds goes in as the the number four on our list here between Josh Gibson and Mickey Mantle. In the meantime, that is our episode. 
please, again, this is one that I want to think about. I want to get right, and I might move things around as I think about it more, or as I get feedback, or if someone has thoughts on it. Again, if you have, if you have thoughts on this, this is a tough one. There's no real good. It's not statistics, and it's not just steroids. It's not just the character clause. It's it's all of these things, and and how we're going to weigh them is, is tough. It's subjective. Well, if you have thoughts about it, please you can reach me on. Twitter for as long as it's still Twitter or X or whatever it is now at Daniel J Port, or you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies on Twitter, or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com if you have thoughts or uh, opinions on that. And otherwise, we are going to be back. I'm hoping for next week. Life has not been kind in getting these things out consistently every single week. Last week, I had to go a whole week without internet, and that made doing the research really hard. Two weeks before that, gout of all things for a while. Hopefully things sell down and I get back to getting these out on a weekly schedule. But in the meantime, folks, next week, I think we're going to cover, or next episode at least, we are going to cover Ted Williams following in the same Barry Bonds mold. And I'm really excited to delve into that because I feel like it's an aspect of Williams we don't talk about enough and explore enough. And it's, it's fascinating. And the stories behind it are really great. Tune in next time for that. In the meantime... This has been Longball Legacies. I'm your host, Daniel Port. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. Enjoy just really the rest of your summer. Enjoy baseball. We're on the home stretch here. And I will talk to you all next time. Thank you so much. Okay.